Love What Matters presents Your Story is a production of Love What Matters and iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Colin Balf, founder and CEO of Love What Matters, and welcome to Love What Matters presents Your Story. Each week, we'll hear an incredible story of compassion, kindness, and above all, love. I think I realized that I had more, more to give than I thought. You know, there's some things that I, I went through as a child that because I didn't have someone to trigger them or remind me of that I thought, oh, those are gone, you know. And then I got kids and I'm like, man, I need, I still need more counseling, uh, you know. So I've learned that, you know, ki- kids will push that button where you, you thought you would call chapters that I've let myself, you know, to, to love. But now that I have kids, I really had to reflect and look back and say, this is how my dad will respond. If I respond that way, I might just being who he was. What I thought was gone, what I thought I had dealt with, you know, I think kids have helped me deal uh, with it. Today's incredible story spans countries, continents, and even generations. It's about one man's impressive resilience and total dedication to improving the lives of others, even while he continues to grapple with his own traumatic past. My name is Peter Mutabazi, and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm 46 years old. I just changed my name. I just became a U.S. citizen. So I, my last name was Habiyarimana. And uh, the reason why I was called Habiyarimana was for every 100 children that were born in my village, 50 would not make it to the age of two, you know. So my mom was afraid to give me a name because she didn't know I would make it. So she, she waited until when I was two and she said, you know what, he's made it. He's a gift given to me by God. So basically my last name meant a gift given to me uh, by God. I grew up in a small village at the border of Uganda, typical African village, so poor and so uh, miserable. Uh, you know, a place that we hardly had anything to eat. But that was my small village. Peter's childhood was a difficult one. It shrouded him with a sense of hopelessness that was impossible to shake. Grew up in a home where, you know, no one ever told to dream. No one ever told you, hey, there's a week uh, for you. You know, we grew up in a home where you had today and that's all you could think about, you know. Grew up in a home where I began to work uh, at the age of three. I'll take care of my little sibling who was just one. I would go fetch water about two miles away just to drink. So life was really, really, really uh, difficult in, in every shape, form. But also at the age of four, I began to realize that, you know, not only were we poor, but my dad was the most abusive dad you could think of. So on one side, I had poverty. And then on the other side, I had, you know, my own father that could easily take my, my life. You know, so at the age of four, really life was just miserable in every shape form, you know. The no food, but also, you know, watching your own mother being beaten or abused that way as a kid. You just want to disappear. You want to, in some way, just everything go away. But there's no way they can go away. In Africa, uh, we have a tendency of seeing our, our fathers as, you know, the shield, the source of pride. But for me, I didn't really see my dad that way. You know, the way he treated my mom and the way he treated all of us, that I just had this hatred towards him, that I hated him with every ounce of my life. Uh, and if he said there's no food for a week, we didn't get food for the week. If he came home before we ate, you know, that food was thrown away. So for me, he was the, the worst human being I, I could think of. So I, I had no absolutely any relationship with my dad. 
but with my mom. You know, my mom was the one who was there who fed us. In Africa, we grow our own food, so we do subsistence farming, you know, where moms spend most of the time in the gardens to grow food to feed the family. And that's what we did to help mom. At the age of eight, uh, my mom took me to school, not so I can be somebody, but I think she wanted me to learn how to spell my name. So I went to school just so I can learn to spell my name. That's the best that she could do for me. Then at the age of nine, the abuse, I think as I grew older, they became worse and worse. Maybe I was growing up as well, so I un- understood and felt it in the worst way possible. The abuse Peter's father inflicted on his family soon became too much to bear. Peter and his family were at his mercy. And one night, Peter decided he had had enough. So he came that night. He was really, you know, mad as usual, which was almost every day. And he realized he didn't have a cigarette. So he said, hey, can you go get me a cigarette? But it was raining, pouring out so much. As a kid, we didn't have raincoats. We didn't have anything else, you know. I didn't have a pair of shoes until when I was 16. So there was no anything else to protect myself. But I walked. It was about, you know, maybe a quarter mile away. So I walked you know, went knocked at the door of a little small shop. And so they gave me the cigarettes. I remember they were four cigarettes. But before I could get home, I mean, it was raining so much that they basically got destroyed. All his cigarettes had been destroyed. I was like, he's going to kill me. And so I thought, look, I can either let him take my life or I can choose a life to disappear that he never gets to see me. So I ran to the bus and I reached there and I asked the lady, I said, hey, of these buses, which one goes the farthest? And the lady said, that one, you know. And so I got on that bus. I had never been 20 miles away from my village and I went 500 kilometers and I ended up in Kampala. At just 10 years old, Peter was alone. It was the first time he was away from his village and his family. He needed to learn how to survive on his own and quickly. The bus arrived around three in the morning. So I stayed around the bus You know, I didn't know where else to go. They spoke a different language that I could barely understand. But I could also speak a little bit of English. So I didn't go more than 100 feet away from the bus I stayed. And there were more than other 25 buses that were coming in from different villages, different towns. So I figured, you know, it's safe. It's all I know, so I'm going to stay around here. And quickly, I got to know other kids as well. And that's how I made it on the street and how I found I, I can survive really doing whatever was needed uh, for me to stay. But also there was a lot of food there. And, and so quickly I found out also the, the bus station was by the, the sewage canal. And there, were, there was a bridge where we could go high that nobody could go there. It smelled so bad and all the garbage, that's where uh, they were thrown. So most people didn't go there, but as street kids, it was a safe place to go. But also it was a safe place to, to somehow, you know, cook As kids in Africa, we don't beg for money. You know, we help or they use us for cheap labor in order for us to be valuable to them. So we knew that the only way we can steal food was always when you're helping. If they needed cleaners, we cleaned for them. If they needed kids to lift things for them, we did lift things. If the buses need to be cleaned, we did whatever we could find. But just so we can be busy. It was another way of earning a right to be on the street and stay in that whole small town or small little parking space where all the commotion was. Women selling, you know, buses arriving, produce being shipped here and there. So there was a lot of food, but also that we could be useful as street kids. And so that became my life from the age of, uh, you know, 9, 10 to until when I was 15 years of age. Escaping an abusive household and living on the streets forced Peter to think of himself as less than, as undeserving. 
at home, I was considered as useless. I think those are the, the words I had from my dad. And so for me, I really, really never saw myself as a human being. Like I, I felt like I didn't match up to any other human being who, who walked on, on earth, apart from my fellow street kids, you know, because of what, how we're treated, but also what we were told we are. If someone said we're a dog, I mean, we're living like them, you know. If my dad said I was good for nothing, I understood that. More on Love What Matters right after a quick break. Welcome back to Love What Matters. But things began to change when a friendly family began to come around where Peter and the other kids lived. So this family would buy uh, food. I think they had a shop, so they would come to buy produce. So we would help them, help any family who wanted to uh, help. When I tried to help this family, they gave me something to eat. And so they, they left. Then the next week, I saw them again. And street kids, we had a, a strategy that if you find a family that lacks one kid, we always make sure that kid is the one to meet that family, you know? But we knew we all share. So every time they came, even if I wasn't around, the other kids would say, hey, your friends are here because they knew they would give us food. So they fed me for almost six months. And then they said, hey, you know, if you had an opportunity to go to school, would you like to go to school, you know? And I said, ah, yes. But remember, my own father could not feed me. My own father could not take me to school for, for a stranger to say, who didn't know who I was, to say, would you like to go to school? It was more like, are you kidding, you know? But I made it a point because I knew they only spoke English and they always talked about school. So I knew the only way to get food from them was to say, hey, when are you taking me to school? So every time I saw them, I was like, hey, am I going to school? But really I was saying, give me some food, just leave me alone. So I didn't go to school immediately. It took almost a year and a half later. At some point, I think because they had fed me consistently, that I began to believe in them, you know, so... They said, hey, we mean it. We want you to go to school, but on two conditions. You go to boarding school and you have to stay there. So I was like, wait, really? It wasn't because I wanted to be somebody, but because he recognized me as a human being, which I didn't believe that I stood at the same level as other human beings. So I did go to school with a promise that I would have food. So the first day there was food and they told me there's lunch and I waited for lunch. They said there's dinner. I waited for dinner. Every day for me, I was waiting for a meal. It wasn't like I was there for school, but that meal is what kept me there. Then along the way, I realized that I was also good in school, you know. So that's really how he, he got to, to change my life and give me the opportunity to go to school. In time, Peter viewed school as less of a meal ticket and more as an opportunity. He and his teachers realized he was a gifted student with lots of potential. And that potential, paired with his eagerness to learn, led Peter to a new and loving community. And in some way, the teachers, when they began to really take a little notice that when I struggled in math, they would say, okay, can you stay for an hour? We'll help you. Uh, and that really began to, to, to show me that, hey, I think I got something in me. Quickly, I, you know, I knew that I wasn't good in something. So then I began to hang out with friends who were good at was, what I wasn't good at. You know, that was my strategy, that if I didn't have a book, I would befriend the one who ha has it. And I realized that they wanted the best for me and they became friends. So I began to realize that I had family. Also, after three months in school, the family that picked me up the streets, they said, hey, we would like you to come and live with us when there's no school. So now, not only did I see school and the potential that I had and the, the amazing opportunity I could have, but also when, I, uh, when school was out to his home, I began to see a family that had a structure, that loved one another, that ate on the table, that the dad never yelled. 
for the first time, I had someone to compare, to say, hey, he's an example of what a successful, kind man he can, you know, I can be. For me then, the behaviors, you know, uh, the working hard towards being better. If I had a, a B, I felt I was, I had failed him, like I just needed an A because of what he had done. So I did well, so I went to primary school, then I went to secondary school, and then I, you know, I went to university in Uganda uh, to pursue a degree in business administration. And so when I finished my degree, my church had a, a visitors from UK. They came to spend time with us. And, and so one of the, the elders said, hey, you know, could you take care of the visitors that come from England? And so I stayed with them and they went back. So, you know, a month later, they say, you know, they send me a letter saying, hey, well, we hang out with you for three weeks and we saw how you love the kids and we would like to give you a scholarship to, to study in England, you know. And that's how I got a scholarship to study in England. So after my university, then I went to London where I, you know, lived and worked and studied for, for four to five years. Education had allowed Peter to travel to different countries and to meet and connect with all kinds of people. He recognized the weight of the opportunity he had been given and wanted to ensure his family had similar chances. I went back to Uganda. I'm the oldest of five, so I wanted my siblings uh, to have the opportunity that I had. So I was working hard, making sure that I can, you know, I was paying for their tuition, you know. Once I got an opportunity to go to school, I really wanted them to have that same opportunity. But they also got to see me excel in school. And so they began to want to do well in school, to want to help. And so for me, every book I had, every uniform I had, I would keep them and then I would give those to my siblings. They've all gone through university and they've all done well. Why? Because they saw what I had become, but also I wanted to be there for them. Peter's hard work had paid off. He was able to care for his family and secure a better future for them. But he still had career prospects and goals of his own. I was employed by the Red Cross of Geneva. It was during the Sudan wars in northern Uganda and southern Sudan, so I was working for them. So while we were transporting food to refugees, you know, I, I visited one refugee and there was a, you know, 18-year-old white boy and by then I was dating an, a girl from America. I said, wow, what are you doing here? I said, well, we're here to help kids in the refugee. And I said, hey, we're here to provide food for them. And I said, hey, if you come back to Kampala, I did an American, so you can come and eat American food. And, you know, so he came and stayed with us for a month and then went back to the United States. He told his school, like, hey, I met this guy. I think we should give him a scholarship to come and study in the United States. And I think I loved really helping the kids because I really understood that was me at some point, you know, and I saw hope and, and grace towards, you know, any kid who was in need that, yes, we need to have faith in them. We need to believe in them. We need to tell them they have potential. So I've always worked for organizations that work with kids, you know, either with Red Cross or with Compassion International or with World Vision that has given me an opportunity to go beyond where I never thought I would be. And so that's how I went to England and that's how I ended up in the United States as well. More on Love What Matters right after a quick break. Welcome back to Love What Matters. In the States, Peter's dedication to helping children in need escalated to a desire for fatherhood. So I thought at 25, I'll be married with seven kids. It didn't happen. At 30, I thought I'll be married, you know, with one child. Mm, didn't happen. At 35, I thought, what's, what's going on? So I said, you know what? I'm going to find a way on how to make a change without waiting to get married at some point. So I quit my job. I decided to move to Oklahoma where it was cheap to do real estate. But also, I wanted to, to be a foster dad. Initially, Peter could hardly believe the United States required a foster care system. Living in the United States, like, you're the wealthiest country on the planet, so I didn't know they are forcing 
kids. Like I didn't know there were kids that need help, have nowhere to go, that they have no parents or have, you know, crazy parents like I had. I didn't know that until, you know, when I traveled with someone who had fostered a kid and it's like, man, you know, uh, it's tough. We have this little girl that the parents uh, just don't want him, you know. And I thought, wait, what? You know? And so that jury stuck with me. So from there, I always volunteered and I always looked for a way to find out how I can help kids. So I think having a house that had extra bedroom, like I just could not rest well knowing that empty two beds, you know, knowing that in my neighborhood there are kids that have nowhere to go, that I struggled with that. I walked to the agents, I said, hey, I'm here to help, you know, so let me know how I can be of help. Uh, and they said, hey, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? And I said, yes, I have, but I'm single. I didn't know they allow single men to be foster dads. And so that day I signed up and um, I became a foster dad four months later. And the reason why I wanted to do real estate was because, you know, I could be a boss of my own. If I have kids or if I needed to help, like I can, you know, I had that time to take away either to the hospital or to meet their parents or if school needed me. Like I had the position to be able to do that without, you know, feeling the pressure of eight to five job. Peter embarked on the journey of becoming a foster parent. He did the paperwork took a four-month class, and bought and remodeled a new home. The week after the house was finished, he welcomed his first of many foster children. So I've been a foster dad for three years, and in the three years, I've, I've had 11 children. Each child comes with different challenges. You know, to love kids, and you see them doing well, you, you take them through therapy, you see them improving, you know, and then sometimes going back to their parents and going to the same things that they're kind of recovering from that was the hard part to know that there's nothing I can do. Eventually, the rotating door of the foster care system began to weigh on Peter. He felt his heart break every time he had to say goodbye to a child, which is why he was hesitant at first to take in an 11-year-old boy who had been abandoned by his family. But Peter agreed, unknowingly making one of the most important choices of his life. So the social worker on Friday called me and said, hey, this 11-year-old kid that needs a home. And I was like, nope, my heart is just, I'm just in pain for saying goodbye and I don't think I'm ready to take another child. And she said, no, 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 you know, just two nights. We bring him, we pick him on Monday. He has nowhere to go. He's at the hospital. Please, we will not ask for more, you know? So I said, okay, you promise you pick him on Monday. So he came at three in the morning and then 10 minutes later, the social worker left. And then he, I said, you can call me Mr. Peter. And he said, no, but can I call you my dad? And I said, uh, no, because you're only here for two days. You know, I said, I don't think it's, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's right to call me dad for two days when you're leaving. But it's hard for foster kids to call you dad. I think he was the first one to say, but can I call you dad? So on Monday, they came to pick him up. So for the first time, I sat down with a social worker and said, so what happened? You know, and they said, well, he was put in the system at one year, one year and a half. And then he was adopted at three and a half. And the family that adopted him just dropped him at the hospital and never came back. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, oh my, you know. And then, of course, I felt guilty. Like, I could not do what the previous parents had done. So I said, no, it's okay. He can stay. So from day one, they had already terminated the, the parental rights. So I knew there was nowhere so he could go, either the group home or nowhere. You know, when you're, when you're seven and above, it's really hard to find a foster uh, family. So I knew he's going to stay for as long as he can. And that day I knew I was going to adopt him. So the following week, I began to really process that. Like, hey, I would like to adopt him. So what do I need to, to do? And so it was a long process. But in the midst of that, I was living in Oklahoma. So I had took a job with World Vision. So I had to move to North Carolina. So that I did another almost one year because, you, you know, you moved to a different states. So now you have to deal with two states. 
Oklahoma and North Carolina and do the whole license in order to to bring him home. And so that's why it took so long. But I knew, you know, no shadow of doubt that he was my kid. I didn't have to worry no matter how long it was going to go. The system, you know, you it, it's really difficult. Like, And I think to foster kids, you have to love the kid despite the system, you know. It's frustrating in whichever way. But, man, for those kids, they did not create the system to be that way. Kids face the worst when the system doesn't work for them, you know. So I didn't want that to get in the way, but to love the kid no matter what. In raising and loving a child, he's able to see the full circle of his life and reflect on how his past informs his choices as a father. The bond between Peter and his son reminds us of the good that can happen when we take care of one another. For Peter, it was life-changing. When you're going through a class and learning how to be a foster dad, you realize that it's really learning about you and how you can be the best you can be for someone else. That I realized it wasn't really about the kids, but I was learning about me and how best I can be to these kids, you know. Having kids, I think it's really helped me to learn to be there for someone else, to love them. Yeah, not forget about myself for sure, but also to love them and be there for them. And that's been really thrilling in life. We can all do something uh, to change the life of those in our communities. It's our community. It's not anyone. So if we don't do then who will take care of our communities so that we can all do what we can do to change the life. Thanks for listening today. I hope you heard something that inspires and empowers you. For more stories like this one, check out lovewhatmatters.com. This podcast is a production of Love What Matters and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Colin Balf. The Love What Matters presents Your Story podcast, is produced by Miranda Hawkins and me and mixed by Josh Thane. Emily Marinoff is our engineer and Aaron Kaufman is our editor. Editorial oversight by Miranda Hawkins and me with help from Emily Marinoff and Juliet Miller. Special thanks to Nikki Etor, Kevin Balf, Chris Balf, Wilson Garrett, Red Seat Ventures, and Craig Kitchen. You can find more inspiring stories at lovewhatmatters.com. We'll see you next week.